0: Signpost In Podcast, a space at life's crossroads for a refreshing pause and a bit of reflection. My name is Brandon, and I'm really glad you're here. I invite you to join me and my friends, Matt and Peter, for a friendly back porch conversation about prayer, Christian spirituality, faithful theology, and much more. So pull up a chair, grab a drink, and get comfortable as we start today's show. And when we're done, don't forget to visit us at signpostin.org. To find out more about all that our ministry offers hey everyone welcome to the back porch for our first podcast of 2023 despite what we said in our previous podcast this one is actually it and if you're a longtime listener First of all, wow, thank you for being a long-time listener, then you're probably wondering if you're listening to the right show. And yes, yes you are. We're just rolling out a huge change for the new year with brand new, bespoke music composed by Rex Daughtery. Rex is an actor and a director and a singer-songwriter based in D.C. who serves as the artistic director of theater at Solus Now. We'll include a link to his stuff in the show notes. But thank you, Rex. We love our new music. We're also excited about the new year. We've got a lot of cool interviews and shows headed your way, so please be sure to subscribe and share us with your friends. And hey, if you haven't yet given us a five-star review and left a comment on your favorite podcasting platform, why not? It only takes a few seconds. And it really helps the algorithms find us us and puts us in front of other people who would like what we're doing. Thank you for being here. Glad to have you all on the back porch with me today. And without further ado, let's get started with this awesome interview we recorded with J.P. Moreland. Welcome, everybody. Today, Matt and I are honored to be speaking with Dr. J.P. Moreland. Dr. Moreland is a distinguished professor of philosophy at the Talbot School of Theology at Viola University. And he's one of the leading evangelical thinkers of our day. He holds several degrees, including degrees in chemistry, theology, and a PhD in philosophy from the University of Southern California. He's planted churches, spoken and and debated at hundreds of colleges and churches all over the country, and he's written dozens of books and a whole lot more. But today, we're going to be talking about his book, Finding Quiet, which is the story of his overcoming anxiety and the practices that brought him peace. So Dr. Moreland... Welcome to The Back Porch, and thank you for being here with us.
1: Well, Brandon and Matt, it's great to be with you, brothers.
0: We're just really excited to talk to you about this. I Personally, I have to tell you, thank you for this particular book. I read it. Uh, it came out in 2019, and that was the year I read it. Um, in fact, I need to tell you that the guy who sent it to me, I texted him and said, Hey, I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Moreland on this book. And it, his name is Marty Georges, Marty and Eleanor Georges.
1: Oh, you and... know, Marty and Eleanor. Oh my goodness. Yeah,
0: yeah. We go back all time. Yes. Yeah. And he said, I'd have to say hi to you for that. And just, <laughs> and I was kind of chuckling about it because I had no idea, but he, he sent me the book he inscribed it for me. And he's like, I hope you find this helpful. And it was like, it hit exactly the right time. I was going through some really difficult family trauma. I was I had just entered therapy for my own anxiety disorder. And I just found this book to be such a wonderful balance of theory and practice. And, and honestly, Dr. Moreland, this book was a large part of God's work in helping me and my wife launch this ministry that we're doing.
1: Oh, you're kidding.
0: Yeah, so much of what was in it was like, eye-opening for me in ways that I could connect with God that I had frankly been afraid of
1: before so
0: yeah so this is wonderful but so anyway that's just my personal thank you for the book Well, thank Um, you so much yeah and I'd like to start off by asking you a little bit about your own story sure your own battles with anxiety and depression what what happened and what was it like for
1: you Well, I was born in Kansas City, Missouri, and my mother's side of the family had a genetic predisposition to anxiety. In fact, I could trace it to my grandfather, my mother, me, and then I have two daughters in their early 40s, and the one of them looks more like me, and she has it too. The other daughter is more like my wife and doesn't. So, my understanding of the genetic predisposition is not that it's deterministic. It doesn't mean I have to be anxious. What it does mean is that my default setting is closer to anxiety than the average person. And it's easier for me to get anxious than say the average uh, a person who doesn't have this genetic predisposition. I will tell you later some of the things I learned in regard to my own issues. But I grew up in a home where my mother role modeled for me, highly anxious behavior. good woman, I love her, loved her. She, she's gone now. But uh, so throughout my life, i I had times of anxiety and depression, anxiety a little bit more, but I wasn't disabled. It was just something that discouraged me now and then. But it wasn't actually until the end of the school year of two thousand and three where I had had the most stressful year that I can remember. Mm. And believe it or not, right after graduation, and I was facing a sabbatical, I went home and went to bed that night. And about 2.30 in the morning, I woke up and I was sweating. My heart was beating. My body had electricity all throughout it. And I didn't realize it, but I was having a panic attack. I'd never Mm. had one up until that point. And to make a long story short, this took me out for seven months. I, uh, for a while, was laying in a fetal position on the couch. Irrational things caused me great fear, like if the phone rang or if I checked my email, I got highly fearful and anxious. And uh, so I'm a big advocate of Christian therapy and I'm also a big advocate of medications if if your doctor thinks that they're good, I don't and I can tell you why later. So I got on some anti-anxiety depression meds. I did get into therapy for uh, several years and began to do some other spiritual things, some some quiet meditation and reading. So I got through it and and, and then I was okay but about 10 years later, in fact, 10 years later in 2013, the same thing happened. I had another hard year. Mm. And I kid you not, the night of graduation, actually it was in the parking lot. And so I took my doctor robe off and got ready to go home from graduation. I collapsed and fell apart. And doggone it, I said, here it goes again. And this lasted five months. It carried through the summer. And in that fall, I started teaching, but I had to quit and I had to have some people teach for me because I was literally afraid to go in a classroom. Now I taught for decades, but the classroom scared, scared me to death. And so I just told the Lord, Lord, I I don't want this to happen again. And I want to learn some things I can do to avoid this with your help. So I did, I was on meds again, and, and, and I, I didn't go into counseling that particular time, but I read I read everything I could get my hands on, and I used my research skills to select really good secular books and Christian books, and I could toss out the stuff in secular books I didn't agree with, but I picked stuff that was useful, and uh, then on, uh, stuff on spiritual formation, and I began to practice some of these things. And I, I kid you not. After two to three months of of engaging in daily practices, and there were four of them that I did. I'll, I'll talk about that maybe. Mm-hmm. But I got out of it, and I've never gone back. And uh, it, it 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 completely changed my my life, and my and my family, and friends, and everyone notices it. In fact, starting in two fourteen, I've had. 10 surgeries since then, if you can see my eye right here, Mm -hmm. I've got cancer under my eye and in my cheekbone. And I had a, I have a disease that I inherited that's so rare. Nobody's heard of it, but it causes me to to get cancer. And so I had Mm -hmm. 10 surgeries. I had chemo, two rounds of radiation, and I just was completely peaceful. I was not bothered by any of it. Not the least bit anxious, and my even my kids and my wife said, "Dad, what's wrong with you? You know, you, you should be upset about this." <laughs> and so I decided uh, I I felt nudged by the Lord to not waste my suffering and to try to put in a book my journey and the things that I really found helped me the most. And yeah. so the book Finding Quiet is actually an expression of what I went through. Some theory that will help Christians understand why I'm committed to the things I am. And then the practices that I still engage in that are spiritually formative, and they're also emotionally formative. They, they work both ways. And so that's kind of generally my story.
0: Yeah. Thank you. First of all, I'm sorry to hear about the cancer and the, the difficulties that you're still undergoing. I am so encouraged personally. There's so many parallels for me in my own story. Really? Lying fetal on the couch. And for me, it was a closet. <laughs> I found a, oh. a dark, you know, and just found myself there and unable to move and not sure why. And similarly finding some practices that have revolutionized my experience of God. Yes, And, you know, I just, it's so many parallels and I'm so grateful that and I'm so thank you for that. As as we jump into the book, I was actually, to be, to be honest, I was a little surprised when I was reading your book that you started with kind of an extended discussion of the soul's relationship to the body. Yes. I was not expecting that.
1: <laughs> right. Can you help people understand why is that so important to understand? Right. The proper treatment of something, a dog, Uh, an automobile, me, (laughs) depends on the kind of thing it is. Mm. If if it's a dog, there are certain things that you need to do to keep a dog healthy that won't work with a goldfish. So understanding what kind of thing I am is essential in order to broaden the way I think about what I need to get healed and to grow. Now, there are so many people that are against seeing a psychiatrist and antidepressant and anxiety medication, because they think that that means that they have a lack of faith. But what I wanted to show them is that the basis for doing this, for for, um, helping oneself to these medications actually follows from biblical anthropology. That is to say, from the way that the soul and I do believe there's a spirit as well, the way they interact with the brain and the body and the organs of the body just make it obvious that we we should avail ourselves of things that address the biological aspects of this as we are going about addressing the psychological and spiritual aspects, because I'm a holistic being. I I am made of different components. I do I know I have a soul, and one compartment of that soul is a mind and a will and a an emotion, but there's a compartment called a, called a spiritual faculty, but then they're all deeply interrelated with the with the brain, the heart muscle, interestingly, the nervous system. So once you get a hold of the fact that I'm not a disembodied soul. <laughs> it becomes clear that bringing my body into my Christian life is an essential part of spiritual and emotional health. So I wanted to lay that foundation before I went further and made some claims about how to attack this thing called anxiety and depression. I'll just use anxiety from here on in, so I don't have to keep repeating the two, but it it does work for both. Well, I,
2: I really appreciated the fact that you started there, Dr. Moreland, because especially as a person who tends to be more cerebral, I yes. feel like that's that's my happy place. And I have no problem going there. But when it comes to going to the realm of psychology and and different things like that, I, I actually kind of grew up in a tradition that saw psychology and therapy as as, again, something that, well, that's for people who don't have enough faith, not for faithful, biblical, faithful Christians, right? And so for, for by starting there, you really opened the door for me to understand that without an implicit bias. Yes. And that was very helpful.
1: Well, listen, Matt, thank you. Um, and that was exactly why I did it. When I, I I was a little worried because some of that you, you have to wade through some things. And I thought, well, people are going to they're going to drop the ball and just put the book on the shelf. Uh, but I try to encourage people to hang in there. This will pay off in, in a little bit later, But uh, I think that that tradition, and I, I I was kind of grew up in that sort of tradition as well. And I think these people are dead, sincere, and are good-hearted people. But I think they've just got a very, very misguided understanding of the importance of general revelation. And what we can learn from studying the creation uh, and how that impacts us. I mean, if you read the Proverbs, there are things that we are to learn about how to live life from studying very carefully ants and how they and how they act. And you learn all kinds of things about community, about having a role to play and staying in your lane, bro, and, and not trying to be somebody else and so on. And so the Bible is clear that there's a lot to be learned from outside the word as long as it doesn't contradict the word. And that's my test. If it if it's outside the Bible, it's fair game. If it seems reasonable, and if it doesn't contradict the word, if it contradicts a clear understanding of scripture, then for me that's that it's out. I may be dumb, but I'm not stupid. And I'm not gonna, I mean, the scriptures have been around a long time and I trust them. So, But there's more to, to to getting help than just what's contained in the word. So can you say a little bit more about the heart muscle and the connection? That was sort of new to me. Well, let, let me approach it from, from a biblical theological standpoint, and then let me pr- approach it from a medical standpoint. C.S. Lewis, I believe it was in his book, The Abolition of Man, talked about that in the contemporary world, we are creating, quote, men without chests. Now, what in the world did he mean by that? Well, he said, if you take a look at the ancients, the Greeks and the medieval theologians, they believed that the mind was involved in discursive reasoning, where you reason through a chain of points, like what you're doing in deciding what house to buy, which would be the wisest one and then there's the gut which was kind of the center of your visceral sensations for food and for for sex and and for you know pleasure and and so on but the chest was considered to be an area of moral perception that is you could actually be aware of good the goodness of an act or of a, the virtue of a person, or of the wrongness or rightness of an act by intuition. And an intuition is just a way of seeing something that is not within the bounds of the five senses. So that what we have is an ability to be aware of things that you can't see, touch, taste, smell, or hear. I've been aware of a demon before. Uh, People are sometimes aware of angels. We've all probably been aware of the presence of God in a moment of intense worship. But uh, that—that is a legitimate. You're seeing God, but not with your eyes. Uh, You're—you're actually aware of Him. And what the medieval thought was that the heart, the chest area, and the heart was was where the central place where that intuitive knowledge was attained. So a lot of people, when they see the Bible using the word heart, they, they take that entirely figuratively. And I think there's a point to that. But it's also you have to ask, well, why was the heart chosen for this figure, uh, which, which I take it to mean that the very depths of our whole self is, is the heart it's at the, it's the depths of my thinking and feeling and willing. It's, you were getting down to the core of what I really am. And, and the reason is, is because the the heart muscle in the chest area was a, was considered to be a set of powers of awareness. And for example, you can be aware of danger and you, you tend to sense that in the chest area. Hmm. So if we take, some of the biblical teaching on on the heart a little bit more literally as the ground for the metaphors. And if we take the way the ancients understood the role of the heart, as C.S. Lewis pointed out, the chest area is is a very, very crucial place. And in fact, it's out of that area that flows the issues of life, we're told. That doesn't mean that the mind isn't involved. It just means that this area is, is, is where we get in touch with the deepest things in our minds and so on. Now, interesting. So we've got to somehow bring our chests into our Christian lives. And, and that, that raises, how do you do that? What's interesting is that modern medicine has discovered something called the heart math solution. And what they discovered is that there are more neurons which are related to experience when neurons fire. you can feel pain or can, you can have a thought of a lunch or what have you. Now those those mental experiences are in the soul. They're not in your body, but but they are triggered by by your your body. And so there are more neurons in the heart than in any subregion of the brain. And it is actually what some doctors call a faculty of awareness. The heart projects a field up to 12 feet away from your body. What that means is that if there are people within that 12-foot circle, what they're feeling inside can be downloaded into you. You can t- start hmm. sense without knowing you're sensing it. Uh, if someone's happy or moody and, and, and so on. So what they developed was a way of, of retraining your heart muscle so that you did not engage in obsessive compulsive thoughts where you're stuck on a thought and you're mulling it over and over and over again. That's driving you crazy. Okay. And so there are ways of using the heart muscle to to help solve that kind of anxiety-producing obsession. I've been accused of advocating a new age stuff. But this, has, this is a medical discovery. It's got nothing to do with the New Age, and it really is a way of applying the biblical and the ancient theologians' understanding of the heart muscle. It's just an application. So that was where that came in, and it's just but, a tool to help. That's all.
0: Yeah. It's so fascinating because I, after kind of encountering this idea in your book, I I've encountered it in many other places, and one of the places that I really started to read it was the in the Orthodox tradition, in their tradition of Hezekiah, which is kind of quiet prayer and their contemplative tradition, the heart figures prominently as being all of the things you just said. I mean, it kind of includes everything, but one of the phrases that they really talk about is the eyes of the heart, is seeing things with the eyes of the heart.
1: I love that. See, I think that seriously.
0: Yeah. That's what I'm hearing is so interesting is that it's taking it literally. Like, I actually have a, my heart has the ability to perceive things. And we're so, I, so many of us that I know are so used to thinking of kind of this, my head part of my body being where I'm at, (laughs) and the rest of me just being a tool or a machine or a, you know, I'm walking around. And that's not, it's just not true. We are yeah. everywhere. And our body is one of those things that you talk about.
1: Yeah, we are to our bodies as God is a space. I mean, God's fully present everywhere. And the soul is fully present at each location throughout the body. That's why if you cut your arm off, you don't lose 10% of your soul, because your mm-hmm. soul is so fully present everywhere. And the reason that we tend to think that we're just in our heads is because our sense organs tend to receive sensations in that area of the body. But when when I have a sensation in my foot, uh, in fact, I'm having one right now. I, I am directly aware of that. Yeah. I I don't have I don't infer it, or I don't I don't notice my foot twitching and infer that I've got a pain in my foot. I am immediately present to it. Now, it. there's a lot that could be said there, but you're right. That's reinforcing what you're saying. Now, let me just let me just state what you said in a little different terms. I'd rather instead of saying that my heart perceives i'd rather say that i perceive through my heart mm. uh, because it's i that does all the perceiving it's not my organs but i use organs to perceive different things eyes visual ears auditory heart ethical uh, moral danger danger things of that sort
0: hi there back porcher i hope you're enjoying this episode with dr Moreland. We'll get back to the rest of the interview in just a second. First, I wanna let you know about an awesome event coming up in 2023 that we'd love for young adults to attend. GK Chesterton once said, Christianity satisfies suddenly and perfectly humanity's ancestral instinct for being the right way up. But does it really? In my experience, many young people have been required to acknowledge Christianity is true, but they've often been left wondering how to experience it as true. They know the true things to say about God, but they have the distinct impression that they don't know God, the person. Sometimes the gap between our belief about God and our experience of Him seems too large to bridge. If that's you, or if that's somebody you know, then we have a conference specifically for you. A conference designed to help young adults between the ages of 18 to 25 bridge that gap. It's called Bridging the Gap, a Young Adults Conference. And it's March 10th through 12th at our beautiful mountain lodge in Colorado, and it only costs $250, which includes all the food and lodging. We'd love to see you there. Again, it's March 10th through 12th. But be aware, space is extremely limited. This is going to be a small group with plenty of space and time to really dive deep into topics like the incarnation, the problems of loneliness, depression and anxiety, and prayer. You can sign up at signpostin.org slash events. That's signpostin.org slash events. And again, hurry because space is extremely limited. Thank you so much. And now back to the show. Why do you think you mentioned that you've been accused of like new age and things? What, What is it that is, what's scary, I suppose, about the idea that I might be able to perceive through my heart muscle or what's scary about the well, idea that there's other yeah. perceptions.
1: I think people are are going to think, Whoa, that, that sounds a little bit ooey gooey spooky. Now we got to, let's stick with the word. Let's stick with the word. Well, I think the word Paul says the eyes of your, the, he, I think he uses the eyes of your heart mm-hmm. as well. The eyes of your soul. What's he talking about? And it's certainly consistent to interpret those more literally. So I think people get scared because there is a tremendous emphasis, Brandon, on experience and on it being our, you know, our emotions and our experiences being our authority for what's right and wrong. Well, I feel that way, therefore it's right. And uh, I'm not, I don't like that, but I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It doesn't follow from my rejection of that that emotion and feeling don't play any role at all in my awareness of things. What I have to do is be wise about what I intuit and keep it under the check of the scriptures as my ultimate authority. I was just going to say that I
0: I grew up, and I, I think even some of the people that are listening and have heard me say this in in a completely different context where I was teaching before in a, you're, you cannot trust your emotions, you know, and I, you know, sort of proof texting the Jeremiah passage that says the heart is deceitful above all things who can understand it. And I've had a lot of, I suppose, kind of regret over the way that I've thought about that and taught that in the past, because it seems to me that if you, if you don't just take one scriptural line out and, Proof text that you you get a much bigger view because Scripture does talk about seeing God with our heart and and experience speaking to I mean we even talk directly to our hearts in the Scripture at times yes where there's so there's this much more balanced perspective of right right don't trust my emotions completely, but don't discount them. They're a valid means by which I get information and sometimes really important information that I can't get any other way.
1: Dude, you're right. And that and that's that balance. We don't go to extremes. We try to stay somewhere in the middle. And we thank God we've got a reveal text that will help us be sure that we don't step out of balance with this. No, I, I totally agree.
0: Yeah. That's so interesting. If I can kind of move forward what what were the this may not be a fair question i suppose in terms of you wrote the book so there's all of them but what were some of the practices you know if you if if i gave you the floor what's the practices you really want to tell people to to try
1: yeah i what i'd want to do that that's thanks for that what what i'd want to do would be to say something first and that is that the, i think the number one thing i learned from all my mm. research is that though though This is not true in every case. In the vast majority of cases, anxiety is a learned habit Hmm. that can be unlearned by the right practices. So it is a habit that we form. And examples of the way we talk to ourselves. Well, I'm I'm an idiot. I'm not good enough. I'm just, I, I, I should be doing more than I'm doing, whatever it might be. And those are habits. Some of it's parent tapes that we were told by our parents. Some is the way we coped with danger or fear when we were kids. And there were survival strategies. And even to, when we get older, we use them. But, but the point is that habit formation is absolutely critical in the Christian life. In fact, Paul talks about this in Romans 6 and Romans 12, where he says, present the members of your body to God as instruments of righteousness and shalom or peace rather than instruments of unrighteousness. And that word also would include fragmentation or anger or fear when we're not to have that. So what does it mean to present the members of your body? And, and I, I, I laid out in, in the book that the two primary organs of the body that are to be the members are just your organs and Mm -hmm. your facial regions. So like the, your forehead and so on. So now they've just discovered that if you smile, that, that it actually makes you lighter because your body was made to smile. And so if you are a person who tends to get just automatically be down, practice smiling Uh, When you meet people now, you say, well, that's hypocrisy because I don't feel like smiling, (laughs) but it's but but even if you don't want to smile, if you want to want to smile, then it's not hypocrisy, because if I want to want to smile, that means that I would like to become a person who by just naturally smiles at the day and at people okay. How do you how do you do that? Well, you start by practicing. And you know anything you I don't care if it's tennis or learning the stock market, God forbid. I mean that's over my head. But anything <laughs> you, learning a foreign language, anything that you want to learn to do is difficult and awkward in the early stages of learning to do it. I mean, you've talked about hypocrisy. you get out there on a the tennis court. And I mean, you—you're you, not—you can't do anything right, so you're fake. I mean, you know, it's not that you're intending to be a big shot. You get the point. So, yeah. so, so, what happens is that these practices are simply in accordance with Paul's teaching in Romans six, to constantly form good character in my brain. And in my heart and nervous system, or your stomach through fasting, whatever it might be, in order to take my bad habits, which are fleshly, and replace them with kingdom habits, which are uplifting
0: and strengthening. Dr. Moreland, can I pause you for just a second? Yes. Because I think where you're going, right before you go there, if, if I'm, but character formation, one of the shifts that... This conversation did for me was for whatever reason, I always thought of character formation as not doing things. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like I would look at here's sinful behaviors, here's bad habits, and whatever else Paul meant by presenting my members to righteousness, it meant not doing stuff. Yeah. And I'll tell you, that was such a trap for me because. What the heck do I replace it with? I had no idea. All I knew was cut off stuff, stop doing stuff.
1: Dude, you just nailed it. And 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 Matt and and, and Brandon, this is why going to a text that says casting all your angst, you know, uh, pray without ceasing, or you'll have the peace of Christ will rule in you if you cast your anxiety on Him. That's why it doesn't work, because those commands mm-hmm. are not meant to be taken in isolation from a life that is forming a christ-like character you can't live any way you want to live and then all of a sudden pray a prayer like that or fast and have it be a good experience because you're if you're fasting you're going to be thinking all the time about how hungry you are you have to you have to start by habituating and training yourself to fast by by Just doing a meal, like on Monday morning, just skip breakfast. And then after you get that down, skip breakfast and lunch. So you eventually train yourself gradually to where fasting is not hard. Then guess what? If you have to fast in an emergency, and this is recalls for prayer and fasting, you're able to do it more easily because it's a part of your nature. Well, similarly with casting your anxiety on him. You do that and you pick it right back up again and you think about it but that's because those those commands are meant to be grown into by people that have decided to pursue a path of spiritual maturity i think for me the
0: the it was like i was told don't go down a path but nobody ever showed me the path to go down which Amen. is what you're talking about right and i was so casting all my cares on christ all that really i knew was i shouldn't be anxious i shouldn't be mulling these thoughts over and over and over again you know and i've i've often described my anxiety feeling like i had a bag full of hornets that i had to tend and i was constantly pulling it out and looking at it well what opened up for me was you can replace those thoughts with a prayer so i you know i started with the jesus prayer and yeah now my mind had something to do, which was actually go. casting my cares on Jesus, not just telling me not to think that way.
1: that's so crucial. And this is the root of the of the four practices that I offer it. Mm. Let me give you, let me give you one of them. Yeah. This practice was developed by a UCLA psychiatrist, Jeffrey Schwartz, who is a believer. He went from atheism, he's Jewish, and he converted 12, 13, 14, 15 years ago and I know him and he's a dear brother, but he was concerned about people who engaged in negative self-talk. And as a result of that, they ended up finding themselves halfway through the morning dreading the day or just kind of down or fearful. And he wanted to give people a way to stop doing that. And so he developed what he called the four-step solution to stop that kind of bad self-talk. And the first one, before I give these four to you, and they're in the book, but the first thing you have to do is you have to become alert to, to what you're saying to yourself because we're so habituated to saying, oh, I don't want to go to that meeting at work because I know people think I'm an idiot and I, I don't want to say anything. Uh, we're so used to do, talking to ourselves negatively and fearfully that we don't notice we're doing it. It's just such a habit. Like when you write a letter by hand, you're not paying attention to how you form the English alphabet. You're paying attention to what you want to say. You form them by habit. You don't have to think about it. Similarly, our self-talk is so below the surface that we're not even aware we're talking to ourselves that way but the impact is huge so the first thing i do is i i pray psalm 139 23 to 24 and that is lord search me and know me examine me and and see if there's any way of harm in me and lead me in the in a way of shalom in the everlasting way and then bring your thoughts captive to Christ. Well, how do you do that? So what you I do is I start by saying, "Lord, good morning." Throughout the day, I, I I'm asking your you Holy Spirit to help me notice when I'm engaging in self-talk. That's not because I, I don't want to go in there by myself. So help me be more alert. So now I go through my day, and I'm not inordinately introspective, but I I try to just pay attention. To any messages I'm sort of quietly giving myself. And now when I spot one of these, the first thing you do is you, what's called, you relabel it. And what you say is, stop. The thought you just had has no connection with reality. It has nothing to do with, with what's really there. Instead, it's nothing but a, bra- a bad habit that is triggered by the grooves of your brain which habitually trigger those things and that's all it is it's a bad habit okay so now you've now, now you stopped it for just a minute and you're at least giving yourself a little distance from it because you're not now just buying whatever you're it's saying to you, lock stock. I am an idiot, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you are, but that's <laughs> for that's for another day. So you say, okay, maybe, maybe this is just a bad habit I'm into that I need to break. Then you then the second thing you do is you reframe this. Now in the book, I list a, a classic list of what are called 10 thought distorters. And I, I I don't have all ten of them off the top of my head, but I'll tell you one of the one that I do, or did, that was my favorite one, unfortunately, and that was I would engage in what if thinking. And then I would catastrophize or magnify what would happen if the if took place. So I, yeah. I you might say, well, gosh, what if I? What what if the students find out that this journal article got rejected? Oh my God, they wouldn't, they would, they they would not think highly of me. They, they would think that I'm, I'm a phony or whatever it might be. And then I'd, Oh my gosh, well, how, then I'd spend my time thinking, well, how can I make sure they don't find out about that? You understand? Or whatever it might be. Yeah. I spent my life living in the future because my thought disorder was to engage in all the things that might hurt me. What if this happens? Oh my gosh, what if that happens? And then I would say, Oh, that would be horrible. And then I try to cover my bases to make sure that never happened. Not so they've discovered that ninety-four percent of the things that you worry about never take place, and six <laughs> percent do. So I was wasting emotional energy on things that turned out never to happen. Um, and and so you you relabel it. Another one would be emotional reading because you feel something; it's true. Another one, and that's especially true with people because people are looking at you a certain way you 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 think oh gosh they don't like me or what have you and and so
0: my wife and i my wife and i have a little phrase we throw back and forth when we're (laughs) we're saying and it's sort of a little mantra in a funny way chant just because i feel bad doesn't mean i am bad and we'll throw that i like it so She'll come to me and she's like, just because you feel bad doesn't mean you are bad. And I'm like, yes, right. Okay.
1: Exactly. That's one of the 10. That's very good. I really like that. So now look at what's happened in steps one and two. I've taken, I've become aware of this self-talk and I've tried to to get a little distance from it. So I'm not sucked into believing it. I, I tell it, first of all, you're nothing but a bad habit, dude. You got nothing to do with the meeting that's coming up or anything else. And in fact, I, I even know how, what, what kind of bad habit you are your emotional reading or your catastrophic, and, and, you, and you have those 10. Now, UCLA did a study on patients that were having physical pain in the hospital. They discovered that if the patient was told the name of what was wrong with them, that they could withstand a significant amount more of pain without it bothering them, because that gave them at least some sense of control and understanding of what was going on. And and the same with these two, if you do these, then you feel it minimizes your anxiety because you get a little bit of a sense of what is really happening. Okay, now the third step is key. Once you've done those you turn like you said and focus on something completely different. You refocus. And and what we and believe it or not it doesn't have to be something spiritual. What it has to do is to get you in what is called flow. And flow is when you're so caught up into something you lose track of time. You know it may be Playing the piano, it, it could be a TV show you love. Maybe it's working with your hands and fixing. Th- I, I we all have things that picking up a novel. I like to check the Kansas City Chiefs websites because I'm a Chiefs fan. Okay, so I'll go there and see is anybody injured from the game or what you know. And what yeah. that does is after before I know it, I, I'm all up, up about the Chiefs. You know, I'm not thinking about me. If it's a hymn or some scripture text you've memorized, as long as it gets you into a flow, then then whatever works that's not immoral is, is something you should do. All right. Now, that means that when you first do this, it, it, it's going to take you 25 minutes or so to get into that flow because you're bad at it. Just hang in there because after several weeks, bam, you can you can get into that flow in a minute. Because it's becoming part of your second nature. Mm -hmm. And so after you are in the flow, what it does is it just takes the power out of that self-talk and the anxiety it produced. And now the fourth step is you can go back and actually pay attention to that thought. And it's not fear producing anymore. You can actually say it to yourself and Mm -hmm. reevaluate what to make of that thought or what, what you can do better next time. Now that is a. This is a specific way that you can replace, you can get rid of those thoughts and replace them with something else. There are other ways. Take whatever works for you. But this is one practical application that I found. It's not thus sayeth the Lord. It's a way to cast my anxiety on Him and not pick it up again.
0: Yeah, and I I want to encourage listeners. Because I I know, I, f- I can remember feeling like at the, at the outset of starting this. Yes. Just this kind of overwhelming weight of, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of steps. That's a lot to remember. And I, I guess what I want to encourage listeners is, it does feel that way. I found it extremely helpful to have another person with me at times and walk uh, me through that at times. Very good. And I, as I did it with another human being who guided me it relieved the pressure of me having to remember all the steps and then, but now it's much more of a, like you get to the point, like you've been saying the whole time, like you, you start learning to practice the piano. Eventually you just play. And so this is the same thing. This doesn't have to be something you have to consciously step through and you eventually just kind of become habitual with it. Matt, you were going to say
2: something. Well, yeah, I was going to say, cause this, the, it makes me think of that section in your book when you refer you, you likened this to a sports analogy where you talked about the guy who's needing to improve his golf swing, and he brings a coach in It says, "Your, your problem is your wrist, you need to start practicing a kind of wrist righteousness. Yes. And, and that metaphor really worked on me. And it and something else that it did is that it kind of transitioned this from a, you know, from some of these prescriptions in scripture that we get of, here's something that you a righteous person ought to do, go do these and be righteous. It took it from being something more like that into the realm of Hey, practicing these things like practicing patience and practicing gratitude becomes a life-giving thing. There you go. There
1: you go. And yeah. and and Matt, as you know, when you start playing a sport or the piano or whatever or learning to actually be grateful. Dude, when you first started, it is overwhelming. I mean, you sit down at that keyboard and you I I would literally freak. Because I would say, what in the world am I supposed to do with all of these? Or with a golf club. And if you're not a grateful person, it can just feel overwhelming to, to sit down and try to remember these steps and to, to actually express gratitude that you don't really feel. But but if you stick with it, like anything, after a while, you learn, you're just kind of playing or you swing the club and it's you, you're fine tuning now. And same with with what you've just mentioned, the gratitude thing is huge and you actually start feeling grateful for things. Yeah. But there, you got to do something to get there. And and, yeah. and as you pointed out, these, these injunctions in scripture are actually invitations to life. But yes. the question becomes, okay, how do I then get there? How, how do I grow in being more like that? And these are just ways of helping.
0: Yeah. I want to jump to a question that's kind of comes home for me. In the very last portion of your book, you started off with the title or the heading, it's about suffering, healing and disappointment. That's the section. And the heading you start off with is you are what you think, especially about God. And that's that is very central to the kind of work I now do with people is this idea of how we think about God. So I kind of just want to open that up to you as well. What do you mean by that, that you are what you think, especially about God, and why is that important?
1: Certain thoughts that we have do not affect a whole lot of the other thoughts we have. So, for example, if I have the thought that I would really like to have Brussels sprouts instead of uh, peas or green beans for dinner, and I actually believe that thought because I have thoughts I don't believe, then that will affect certain desires I have, and maybe it'll affect an anticipation and a hope about what's gonna be served later in the day. That's about it. I mean, it it doesn't have much to do with uh, how I budget my money or how I vote and on and on. There are other thoughts though, that are absolutely fundamentals. And, and the test is if you pretend that you change, you you no longer have that, you change that thought to some other thought. Like suppose that I have the thought and belief that there are real moral absolutes. Well, now suppose that I decided to just pretend that I, I was a relativist and didn't believe that sort of thing. Well, I will tell you that would have a ripple effect throughout a whole bunch of areas of my life that would fall like dominoes. So that, that is a thought that is that has pervasive permeation throughout my whole web of beliefs and character. Now, I have reason to think that one's thought of God is a fulcrum that has the greatest impact on everything else a person believes and does. So if you are an atheist, and your thought about God is that there is no such thing, that is going to affect, oh my goodness, a lot of things about you. If you have a thought about God, but you depict him like a very harsh father that you were raised, then you will have trouble feeling like God actually likes you and loves you. And and you will want to be very, very much walking on pins and needles whenever you pray and and so on. So you get the point that whatever you're thinking about God will have a ripple effect throughout you. And we have constantly got to fight against distorted views of God because we pick up views about father figures and all sorts of things that are, then we project them on God. One of the Psalms is where God says to the Psalmist, you thought I was just like you. You projected yourself onto me and thought I was like you are. Well, we do that. We project our own garbage onto God, and that's not helpful. That's why, one another reason why I'm just so thankful for Scripture. It is just such a lifeline because it is a corrective. And this is why memorizing texts about God and recognizing that he loves to forgive, he doesn't begrudge it. He actually loves forgiving. Well, boy, that... Changes my attitude when I come again because I'm I don't have to go. oh, Geez, you know, here you are again. Nothing like that. So that's why I said it.
0: Yeah, it it strikes me that that's in this realm of how we think about God. There's such there's such a parallel to how we're thinking any thoughts, how we change whatever thoughts we're having. There is this. There's always this place of practice and habituation, right? So absolutely. I have a habitual way of thinking about God from all of my past and from the ways that I've been doing it over and over and over again. And that just like I can practice things about thinking about reality or my own self, changing my own self narratives. I'm an idiot. I'm this. I can actually practice changing my narratives about God too. Absolutely. Right. And that's, boy, that's been super transformative for me because I thought I knew <laughs> this is like, when I tell my story, that's one of the things it is, which is, I I did, I did know that God loved me. I knew that he was forgiving, but to kind of bring this full circle here, I didn't know with my heart, I didn't know with my chest area. <laughs> and I don't really mean that like the, 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 I know what you mean, the cheesy. Oh, I just didn't, you know, no, it was genuinely the invitation that I had was God saying, It is time to consent to the reality of who I am with your heart muscle. Like your heart has to be a part of doing this. That to me was, I think, more than any of the practices I learned in therapy. That kind of prayer life has been the thing that has transformed my relationship with anxiety and depression. Because now my heart is projecting a much more accurate picture of God. You know, or maybe better stated, my heart is perceiving more clearly God's actuality.
1: And to get there, I'm sure you had to practice certain things.
0: Yeah, one of the one of the big things I practiced for me that was really transformative was just contemplative prayer. Or um, so some people call it centering prayer, whatever contemplative prayer. I really found it helpful, and I would love to hear you talk a little bit more maybe briefly what it is for people I, many of my listeners have probably heard me talk about it but i would actually be really interested in hearing you talk about the people who have negative reactions to it the people who are afraid of it one of the things you said that i really was helpful was you you compared people's kind of hang ups to it or you stated that it was a logical fallacy of assuming the consequent affirming the consequent yes. and me being the nerd that i am that was helpful Anyway, that's not a very well-formed question, but let me lob it to you anyway.
1: <laughs> I'm not sure what you just lobbed at me. I feel like it's a 500-pound marshmallow, you know? I try to push something thing off and get engulfed by it. But, no, I get what you're saying, and there are many purposes for prayer. In fact, in my view, the main purpose is petition. I don't want to defend that, but, but that's the way I understand the Scriptures. But suppose I'm wrong. It doesn't matter. That's a key part. But in, in contemplative prayer... That's just a fancy dollar 98 cent word for prayers where I seek to connect with God and, and, and be in his presence and just sit quietly. And if he wants to move on me or or speak to me in some way or love on me or, you know, He He I, I'm seeking to give him freedom by quieting myself and and uh, receiving mm-hmm. him. Now, this isn't emptying the mind is so i'm open to the demonic no i am orient, oriented towards saying lord i i want to stand before i want to sit before you now in this comfortable chair and i want to bask in your in your presence and your goodness and i i give my heart to you, for you to speak to me, and I might repeat, you know, uh, be still and know that I'm God, or peace I leave with you, peace hmm. leave with you, Jay, as Jesus might be saying that to me. And that keeps my mind focused on him, and, and then I seek to just be quiet and and be in God's presence by way of, and try to connect with him. Maybe just experience his love or kindness or maybe his admonition, but it's being open to God experientially and to anything he might want to prompt me or move upon me. That's all it is, but there are ways of doing that, like trying to quiet yourself, and that sometimes might involve relaxing your body and trying to make sure you're not tense, and people can get freaked about that, but this is just common sense. What I'm doing and so I'm trying to get myself in a place where I'm peaceful and I can just be be there with God without fidgeting, like some I think it's 133 says, you know, like a child that rests against its mother's breast. So my soul is. That means you're not fidgeting and wanting something to eat. You can be there quietly. Well, that's what those practices do. So all I'm maybe I could summarize by saying this: if if our, our viewers would would get the book Finding Quiet and just give me a hearing. That's all I'm asking for. If you if if you disagree with things I say, uh, listen. I don't agree with myself half the time, so <laughs> so that's no problem. But would you at least give me a chance to lay out why I hold these things and and be willing to just listen, and then you can form your opinions after you've given me a fair chance. That's all I'm asking. And I think that there could be real help for people if they would yeah. do. That.
0: Yeah. I, I absolutely agree with that. And is there anything that I should have asked you that I have missed?
1: No, I don't. I think that, that in in this interview has gone in a very good direction. And you two guys are just great. <laughs> I, already, I already feel the camaraderie with you. And we're kind of all fellow soldiers going in the same direction, you know, and it's uh, yeah. a wonderful thing. I, I Here's what I would like to leave with. You do not have to be a slave of anxiety and depression if you don't want to be. There are things you can do. There are medications you can take. There's good Christian counseling. And there are very, very sane spiritual practices that you can engage in where you can make progress. It won't happen overnight, but it will happen. And you can get to a point where either these are managed in a, within a level that you can function, have a a, a a good life, or you can get rid of some of it altogether. And so don't don't lose hard, but stay with it and you and you'll find, I think, results.
0: Yeah. Yep. I worried that since I had spent 40 years developing negative habits, that I was going to have to spend 40 years developing good ones. And the reality was it was about six months. Yep. Now I'm still on the trajectory and I'm still learning, but massive relief very quickly.
1: <laughs> well, brothers, thank you for having me. I've, I've yes. really enjoyed you guys. It's so good to make your acquaintance.
0: Likewise. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Borland, for being here. And listeners, may the grace of Christ go with you wherever the road takes you. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Signpost In. A nonprofit Christian ministry dedicated to helping people connect with God and find direction. We offer spiritual direction, retreats, and lots of other resources like this podcast. Please visit us at signpostn.org to learn more. We especially want to thank our generous donors who support our work and keep this podcast going. If you've benefited from something you've heard on this show, please consider supporting us by making a tax-deductible gift at signpostn.org/donate. That's signpostn.org/donate and thank you.